Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the birthplace of Truman Capote, and home of the oldest mint building in the United States, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the city that served as a stand-in for Atlanta and Gone with the Wind, and Designing Women. Thank you for joining us for Episode 6. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the case against Jeffrey McDonald, who was convicted of the 1970 murders of his wife, Colette, and daughters, Kimberly and Kristen. His conviction in 1979 is one of the most litigated in the history of the U.S. criminal justice system. This is a live show, and calls are always welcome. You can call us at 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. How are you tonight? Hey, it's another day in paradise. I mean, I, I hey, personally, it's a sad fact, but I didn't know about uh, about Gone with the Wind and Little Rock being a stand-in for Atlanta, Georgia. So that's kind of yeah. interesting as that goes. But I uh, don't think it's, I don't yeah. think Little Rock could be a stand-in for Atlanta ever again, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's a building, um, Villa Mar, and that was. Uh, it's the old mill or something, and it was never even a mill. And that was right. a stand-in for a mill in Gone with the Wind. And then Harry Thomason used locations in Little Rock for designing women, for exteriors and designing women. Now, I knew that part. I, I did know that mm-hmm. part. There's a certain, there's a couple houses here in uh, downtown that they actually uh, use. I remember hearing that. But uh, one thing I do want to mention before we get into, you know, obviously the uh, case with Jeffrey McDonald, I do want to mention, I don't know if you had seen it, but uh, about an hour ago, uh, Ms. Barbara Bush passed away. We uh, posted it up on the Facebook page, but she did finally pass away. Uh, I believe she was 92, so definitely yeah. prayers tonight going out to the Bush family. Uh, you know, yesterday they said that she had... I believe it was yesterday they said she had foregone any more medical treatment. So, you know, uh, definitely 
a sad day for them. Yes, it is very, uh, very sad day. And something else, the reason I chose this date for this show, uh, Kimberly McDonald, one of the victims in this case, would have turned 54 years old tomorrow. Her birthday was April 18th, 1964. Oh, wow. So that was why I chose to do the show on this date. Wow, that's that's crazy. Um, definitely, you know, lots of people out there, you know, and we discuss them every week on this show, you know, taken from us way too soon. So, you know, definitely thoughts and prayers still go out to that family, you know, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, struggle doesn't end whenever, you know, as that one person, you know, it continues on yeah. for years and years. Yeah. And I think that's something sometimes that is lost on the people who advocate for those who've been convicted and some of these crimes, the families of the victims continue to uh, experience the loss every time comes up in the news, every time a, a, a news report says wrongful conviction. So um, it is, it's something that doesn't, doesn't end with the, with a funeral or even a conviction. And for some, it doesn't even, it it doesn't end with, uh, uh, it doesn't end with the uh, execution. Absolutely. In a case where there's a death penalty. Absolutely. I mean, you look at it, you know, there's a lot of cases, especially death penalty cases, where there's arguments that the person could potentially be innocent, and, you know, it drags out really for the rest of the time that anybody that could have possibly ever been involved in it, you know, mm-hmm. is still alive. So, you know, definitely it's uh, it's a issue as far as that goes with people, you know. I was actually watching um, I was actually watching a show on the Justice Network last week talking about that same issue. Uh, the brother of, I believe his name was the Happy Face Killer or something. Uh, mm-hmm. And I could be wrong, but it was a gentleman who went on a shooting spree in Phoenix, Arizona. And he was going around to all the victims and uh, apologizing for his brother's heinous acts. And, you know, he mentioned, you know, we don't feel sorry for him, and we realize, you know, especially that it just keeps hurting the family for generations and generations. Mhm. Definitely. All right. Well, well we, are we ready to get we ready to get started? Let's go ahead and get into it. You know, uh, I believe our description was pretty good this week. You know, February seventeenth, nineteen seventy. The bodies of Colette and uh, Kimberly and Christine McDonald were all found on uh, Fort Bragg. And, uh, you know, obviously the person that has now been come the accused, Jeffrey McDonald, says that some drug-crazed hippies uh, attacked or, you know, broke in and attacked the family. Correct. That was his claim. 
Right, right. So walk me through the scene. Uh, it definitely seems like this was quite brutal. Uh, you know, uh, Colette, you know, was pregnant with actually the third child at the time as well. Correct. And she was about um, you know, five or six months pregnant. She was due in July. Uh, this would have been the first boy because they had two daughters. Um, the one of the things that that really led the CID agents who were investigating to doubt McDonald's story was he claimed to have engaged in a struggle with three men wielding a knife, an ice pick, and a bat uh, in the living room of this apartment, and it was just a little three bedroom apartment. And yet the living room did not have blood, fibers, splinters. Uh, There wasn't much disarray. There were pictures that were on the wall and they were perfectly centered and, you know, nothing, nothing to indicate that a life and death struggle had occurred in the living room. And the bedrooms of the house were a different story. Uh, Colette McDonald was found in the master bedroom on the floor. Her daughter, Kimberly, was found in her bed, tucked in. And the youngest daughter, Kristen, was also found in her own bed, also tucked in. Uh, The injuries to the victims were horrific. And yet Jeffrey McDonald had uh, a, a, a contusion on his forehead a small cut on one arm, and uh, maybe another cut on his abdomen, not deep, just through the, you know, through the fat and the skin. And then uh, one wound that was potentially life-threatening between two of the ribs that had punctured his lung. But he was a surgeon. And the theory was that that was a self-inflicted wound. So, um, yeah. So it wouldn't have been Um, nothing for him to, uh, for him to slice himself open. Correct. Well, he didn't even slice himself open. He made a small incision through, you know, the through the muscle and and fascia, and nicked the lung, Mm -hmm. and then brought it out. And he knew just exactly how to do it and where to do it to look serious but not really be as serious. Now, over the years, McDonald has claimed to have had all these ice pick wounds and uh, to have been in, you know, near death when the MPs got there and that they had to revive him. And that just isn't the case. The hospital records from his admission to the hospital do not document ice pick wounds. They don't document multiple stab wounds. They don't even document a serious head injury. And um, the doctor who treated him, he was in the hospital for nine days, but the doctor who treated him said he had nowhere to go. I felt sorry for the guy. And so he, he kept him in the hospital for the nine days. Right. Now, before we get into everything and what have you, 
I misunderstood it, but was it the North Carolina cops who have precinct here, or wouldn't it be military police that have? Uh, Correct. Now, that's something, so and and this is military a military crime. Well, this is kind of. It was a military crime. He was charged by the Army in 1970. And they had an Article 32 proceeding, which is kind Mm -hmm. of the equivalent of a preliminary hearing. Right. Where a hearing officer who is not an attorney, uh, who is not a part of the JAG Corps, uh, I believe the hearing officer in this case, Colonel Rock, was an artillery officer. Uh, hears mm-hmm. the evidence and then determines whether or not there's sufficient evidence to proceed to court martial. And okay. in in this particular case, uh, Colonel Rock, after hearing all the evidence, which a lot of the forensic work was not complete at the time the Article 32 was convened, uh, he found that there was not sufficient evidence, and he recommended dismissal of the charges. But because the murders took place on the on a military post, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the federal government could still prosecute okay. the All murders, right. and that's what that. that was what basically happened. There's a lot of confusion. Um, New North Carolina Fayetteville Police and North Carolina state court systems were not in any way, shape, or form involved in the case. And that leads to a lot of confusion. Okay. Uh, Okay. But he was tried in federal court, federal murder charges, um, and convicted in federal court, and he's serving his time in federal prison. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess we kind of jumped around there, obviously, you know, got into the first trial and what have you, or the first, you know, the Article 32. But let's go ahead and talk about the crime scene and the evidence. Uh, All right. What can you tell me about the crime scene? Like I said, it sounds very brutal. It it was um, – the crime scene was through this little apartment, the little three-bedroom apartment. Uh, it was – it was officer's housing on base, and I think they had, like, four plexes where you had four apartments in one building. Um, I, you, you've lived in military housing. You've probably seen military housing on base. Yeah. Right? Yeah, basically, yeah. almost like a studio apartment is what we had. But, yeah, I've seen military housing. Right. Well, the officer's housing is is a little bigger, uh, but not a lot. I mean, like I said, it was a three-bedroom apartment, uh, one level, uh, and then upstairs was another officer's apartment. So uh, they were on the ground level. Um, As I said, Colette was found in, in the master bedroom on the floor, and when MPs first arrived, McDonald was lying on her body. Um, she had a pajama top over her chest and abdomen and another mat over her 
uh, lower abdomen. And um, she had severe head injuries, stab wounds, ice pick wounds, and um, two broken arms. So she fought like a wildcat against her attacker. No doubt about it. And she did everything she could to protect her daughters. Um, Her daughter Kimberly was found in her bed, but in processing the crime scene, they found that Colette, Jeffrey McDonald, Kimberly McDonald, and Kristen all had different blood types. That's kind of rare, but it can happen. Colette was type A. Jeffrey was type B, Kimberly was type AB, and Kristen was type O. Really? So they found... So it's not uncommon for them to, for one of the kids to not at least match one of the parents? Well, no, it's um, blood is AB, type A, type B, Together can make A, B, or they can make O. Right. And I'm not a science person. I don't exactly understand how it works. <laughs> but um, that is that is how it happens. Like, I don't know because my family, we were all type O. But my mom was RH negative. So she was O right. negative. We're all O positive. And when you have an O and an O, they're always going to have an O. When you have an A and an A, they're always going to have, I think they're always going to have an A, they might have an O. Mm-hmm. And when you have a B and a B, they're always going to have a B or I think an O. Um, I think one of these days we need to get a serologist on to explain how this works. But, um, you know, that, that Kristen was O is not unusual with the combination of an a mother and a B father. But it is mm-hmm. kind of rare. You know, it's it's not an, an everyday thing. And uh, and they could also have had, you know, a child who was an A or a child who was a B. Right, right, definitely. You know. I, I so, mean, um, so is that normal? They test what kind of, what blood type they are whenever they pull the blood? Well, I think what they do, what they do, I think generally in autopsy is they do uh, take a sample of the the victim's blood and type it, so that even right. in those days when all they had was blood type, that they could determine whose blood was where. Right. And the four different blood types was was extremely helpful because it did enable them to map where things happened within the apartment. And so Kimberly's uh-huh. AB blood type was found in the doorway of the master bedroom, which means right. Kimberly was in the doorway when she was injured at some point and caused to bleed. Um, there was a lot of type A blood on in the master bedroom, and then there was type A blood in Kristen's room because Kristen was found in her bed, but there was a large uh, there was a large 
blood spot on, on Kristen's bed, and I think there were splatters on the ceiling and the walls in Colette's type A blood, which means Colette was in Kristen's room at some point when she was uh, injured and caused to bleed. Right, which, I mean, would make sense because she was probably trying to protect the kids. She probably Correct. knew that you know, he was going after the kids. I I think she knew that... I think she knew that Kimberly was pretty severely injured, and so she was trying to protect the only other child at that right. point. And and that was Kristen. But she was attacked in Kristen's room, and then there was evidence on bedding found in the floor of the master bedroom that both Kimberly and Colette were moved using that bedding. Uh, something else that they also found was uh, that Colette's type A blood and Kimberly's type AB blood were on uh, McDonald's pajama top. Okay. Okay, yeah, and that's, a, pretty, that's pretty damning. A large volume of Colette's type A blood was on the pajama top before it was torn. So, um, huh. and another thing, what what most people believe happened, and I believe this happened, there was some kind of altercation. Uh, he struck her, she struck him, but it it escalated. Right. And I think somewhere along the line, he unintentionally injured Kimberly. Right. And. When you, if you watch interviews with Jeffrey McDonald, he is very concerned with how people see him. He wants the world to see him as the bright-eyed golden child who can never do any wrong. Uh, and so he's not going to want to be the guy who beat his wife and gravely injured his child. That's not him. So he came up with this. Manson family hippie story to try and cover up. Right, because the Manson family what was he kind had of done. Correct, but the the sad part of that about that is when he came up with that, he had to go and brutally stab his two and a half year old daughter. Yeah, that's definitely. In addition uh, to. Brutally killing his wife and his other daughter. Excuse my language, but that definitely takes a cold, calculating son of a bitch for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, let's get into McDonald's claims a little bit. You kind of hit on it there uh, of these hippies. So you said he kind of painted the picture almost like Manson family. Is that because he probably Correct. drew from pop culture at the time? And everybody. Correct. Knows this kind of. People did this, with Damien and uh, everybody right. in West Memphis starting with the cult. Right. Well, what really what this was was uh, February of 1970 is six months after the Tate LaBianca murders in California in August of '69, and there was an article in Esquire magazine which they had a subscription to Esquire magazine, although McDonald claims to never have read the article or even seen the magazine um, that talked about the Manson killings. 
and talked about what was known at the time about the case. One of the things McDonald got wrong when he tried to stage the scene is moving his daughter Kimberly to her bed from the floor of the hallway. Because the Manson family, they left the bodies wherever they fell. He goes and moves his daughter to her bed because he wants it to look like everybody was in their beds and they were attacked. So he thinks he's smart, but not really. Okay, so basically, he thinks he did a good job, but it, under close scrutiny, you can pretty much tell that the the you know the story is a bunch of bullshit. Correct. The CID agents could tell almost from the beginning. Again, they had evidence that Kimberly was injured in the hall outside the mm-hmm. master bedroom. They had evidence that Colette had been attacked and injured in Kristen's room, and yet she was moved back to the master bedroom. And hippies just wouldn't have done that. Right, yeah. Hippies, especially somebody like that, you'd think wouldn't take the time to uh, to uh, stage the crime scene, so to speak. Right. That, and that's exactly what he did. It was staging. Um, but when they... In the forensic side, there were 81 pajama fibers found in the master bedroom. Mm-hmm. 24 fibers were found under Colette McDonald's body. Right. 22 were found on the bed. Six were found on the pillowcase. And another pajama fiber was found near the headboard where somebody had written pig in Colette's blood. To, mon- uh, to probably, mimic the Manson murders. I was about to say probably another shout out, you know, to famous Manson murders. Correct. And then, as I now, mentioned before, her blood was on his pajama shirt or pajama top prior to it being torn. And now I see. He Austin, claimed in the struggle. He claimed the shirt was torn in the struggle in the living room. Right. With the intruders. Yes. And there were no fibers found in the living room, no splinters from the club, none of McDonald's blood, or any evidence on the couch or anywhere in the living room of any type of struggle, like I said, including fibers that would have been there if if that's where the shirt was torn. Um. There were also fibers found in Kimberly and Kristen's beds, and McDonald denied wearing the shirt when he went to check on his daughters. Right, right. So the fibers in the beds... Under close examination, falls apart quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, You would think that, but there are people that just do not want to accept this. Um, I, I know we're getting a little bit ahead, but at trial, basically McDonald's uh, defense was the crime scene was not properly handled. The CID didn't know what they were doing. They didn't properly investigate this case, and therefore nothing they found means anything. Right, right. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a desperate man, you know. Is there any idea as far as the motive goes why he did this? Well, like I said, I think it was – I really think it was um, 2 o'clock in the morning. He says he had been reading on the couch, got up, went in his room, found his oldest daughter, Kimberly, in the bed, and she had wet the bed. And personally, I think he woke his daughter up, fussed at her, sent her to go back to her room, and then demanded that his pregnant wife get up and change the bed. And I think it just turned into an argument that, that just kept escalating. Um, he, was, he was a serial adulterer. He was set, he was claiming to be going on a quote trip with the boxing team as their doctor, which was all a lie, and I think Colette knew that that was a lie. And this trip was supposed to be when she was due to give birth to the third child. Which, if she knew it was a lie, probably did not make her a little very happy. Um, and I think Colette, from being a kind of um, a kind of quiet, calm people pleaser, I think she had finally found her voice, and she had started in the weeks prior to the murders to use her voice. And I don't think that that's something that Jeffrey McDonald could handle because mm-hmm. he didn't have a very he didn't have a very good idea about women and his mom coddled him and you know gave him whatever he wanted and so he was you know not not a a modern man he was kind of a caveman so um, but I think once once Kimberly was injured and he was a doctor he knew how badly it about it was I think that he had to do something to protect his own image. And that's what led to getting rid of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen, and the baby that he probably didn't even really want, so that he could have his free single bachelor life back. Mm -hmm. um, Right. Makes sense. And, uh, I mean, you know, he he and Colette got married because she got pregnant. Right. And they were married one year to the day before I was born. Mm-hmm. In nineteen sixty three. So, um, you know, that was those were the days. That was nineteen sixty three. You got a girl pregnant, you married her. Whether you really right. wanted to be married or not. Um in some ways I'm kinda glad that's changed. So but uh, uh, and then the only place in the apartment where any blood was really found from McDonald was a bathroom on the front and right side of the sink and on a step ladder and a stool, and then um, a little bit in the kitchen by the phone, and that was it. Even though he, like I said, had a life and death struggle in the living room and was stabbed multiple times. 
Right, right. So is he pretty much arrested without incident, like almost immediately? Actually, no. He um, he went to the hospital. He was questioned at the hospital. Uh, and then he left the hospital and went to bachelor's officer's quarters on Fort Bragg and, did, you know, had his went to his regular job and did his regular job. And then on April 6, 1970, he went into the office of CID for his first real interview with them. And uh, then after that interview, they were still working on a few more things, but in May, they filed the criminal charges, and that's when he was placed not really under arrest, though. He was in the bachelor's officer's quarters. Um, I think he could pretty much come and go as he pleased. He continued to, you know, do his job. And uh, then, you know, they had the Article 32 hearings. Uh, I think he had MPs with him all the time, but he claims that they, you know, thought he was innocent and getting a raw deal. And, you know, so he... He he was not confined. He was able to have sexual relations with a woman, a civilian, in the bachelor's officer's quarters with the MPs right there. So nobody cramped his style when he was, uh, you know, waiting for the Article 32. Which, you know, to me, I mean, you just lost your wife and children. Really? Bare right. Later, and you're already scoring with the chicks? <laughs> he was definitely yeah, over sex. What was that? Your phone broke up. I said that's pretty damning in and of itself as far as that goes, but... Yeah, I know. What? I know. People grieved it. People grieve differently, but not that differently. I mean, at least, you know, if if he would have, at least he would have tried to hide it. Or he would have felt right. bad about it. You know, and he didn't. So, um, yeah, so the Article 32 was just, it was a hearing uh, before the hearing officer, the, the Army presented evidence. Again, a lot of the forensics wasn't really complete yet. So um, a lot of that, what was presented at trial, had not been, quote, found at the time of the Article 32. And uh, McDonald presented his case, and the, like I said, the Colonel Rock uh, determined that there, were insufficient, there was insufficient evidence to support going to court-martial. And so he was released, and it was it was done. Uh, that was in October, and then in December of 1970, he was discharged from the Army. Mm-hmm. What was the actual charge on the Article 32? It, it was murder, I'm assuming, correct? Uh, yes. I, I believe it was three counts of murder. Okay, okay. Um, and, in 1970, unfortunately, the baby 
the unborn child did not um, did not count. Yeah, so, they, the unborn child wouldn't start counting until what around Lacey's law, wouldn't it? Well, different states have different um, have different laws. Um, I think in some states, had it been medically able to survive outside the womb, it would have counted. This was under federal law, though. And it might mm-hmm. have even been under federal military law. Right. So, so the, a, a six-month, right, a, a six-month fetus that, in 1970, today uh, that uh, that baby could survive if the baby's born at five or six months. Because I have friends whose children were born at five and six months, and it's going to be a long road, but they they are, you know, surviving and thriving. But in 1970, I don't think it, even a five or six month old six month baby would have survived. Because I don't oh, think yeah, the definitely. technology was, was, you know, or the medical knowledge was enough to sustain life at that stage in gestation. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So what were the findings in Article 32? Uh, essentially, Colonel Rock's finding was that there wasn't sufficient evidence um, to proceed to court-martial and that the civilian authorities should uh, investigate Helena Stokely, who was a local woman who was in the drug scene, uh, basically a a police officer in Fayetteville, uh, decided that she was involved in the murders, and the morning after the murders, he decided to go talk to her, and she made statements that, he said implicated her and several of her friends. So uh, they they got paraded into the Article 32 as well. Even though none of the physical evidence at that time supported their uh, their guilt or even any involvement in the murders. Right, right. So, I mean, after this, when does the state pick it up or the uh, civilian courts well in after um, after McDonald was discharged from the army he went on the Dick Cavett show and this is available on YouTube I would suggest that you go watch it at some point and um, his in-laws were watching and I think one of the things is he underestimated his stepfather-in-law, Freddie Kassab. Mm-hmm. Freddie Kassab had been involved in military intelligence during World War II. Um, he was a very detail-oriented, meticulous man. And so he wanted to know what happened to his daughter and granddaughters, as did his wife, Mildred. And uh, I don't think they, I think they didn't think McDonald cared because he was, you know, more about what he was doing in New York and he was going to write a book and he was going to 
you know, sue the Army and take them for everything they had and, you know, just not not grieving in the way that they felt was appropriate. Uh, because it was all about him and not about Colette, Kim, Christy, and the baby. And um, so when, when he went on the Dick Cavett show, I mean, I think the Cassads were, they couldn't believe that he was making jokes. He was being sly, and I was watching another late-night talk show and then kind of, you know, playing for the cameras. And um, they just couldn't believe it. And that mm-hmm. led Freddie Kassab to start pushing to get copies of the Article 32 transcripts because he was not permitted to attend the hearing. And even though at that time they supported uh, that McDonald was innocent, they believed him to be innocent, um, he wanted to, you know, he wanted answers. And he was not going to stop until he got them. And so he kept pushing for the Article 32, and McDonald pushed him off and pushed, put him off and put him off. And then in November of, I think it was 1971, McDonald calls and says, hey, guess what? I went out in Fayetteville with somebody, and we found one of the guys, and we beat him really bad, and we got some information from him, and we, quote, terminated him with extreme prejudice, unquote. You know what I'm talking about. And, of course, Freddie and Mildred, you know, knew what he was talking about. Um, but that was a lie. He was just trying to get them off his back. And, you know, a normal person doesn't do that. A normal person says, look, I don't want you to have it, so quit asking me. And then, you know, you don't like what I'm doing, fine, whatever, be on your way. But he wanted to keep Mildred and and Freddie on his side. So he couldn't appear to be the bad guy. He had to appear to be the hero. And so Freddie Kassab, he petitioned Congress, he petitioned the U.S. Attorney, he petitioned judges in the Eastern District of North Carolina. Um, I mean, he he did not stop. Once he went through that Article 32 transcript and and saw the apartment and realized that Jeff did this, he was an unstoppable force. And the FBI and the CID actually opened a reinvestigation in 1971. And then in 1974, uh, they convened a grand jury because the results of the investigation and a lot of the forensic evidence that really sealed McDonald's fate was... Uh, what came out during that reinvestigation. Right, right. So they went to the grand jury to pretty much be able to uh, do almost what the Article 32 is to show that they had enough evidence to proceed. Right. Well, the Article 32 is more akin to a preliminary hearing 
which is where uh, the state presents evidence of guilt or evidence that um, serves as probable cause to believe that the, the accused committed the crime. And the accused gets to challenge that evidence, and then the judge determines whether or not there's sufficient evidence to proceed to trial. But it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to necessarily be guilt beyond a reasonable doubt evidence. It just has to be sufficient to uh, pre- to go before a jury, present to a jury, to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And the grand jury is actually where you present the evidence to the grand jury, and they decide whether to indict or not indict. So, basically, they decide whether there's probable cause that the accused committed the crime. Right, right. So, then we move forward, you know, here with the uh, indictment and their arrest. Obviously, you know, we did the uh, we did the grand jury indictment and what have you. So, um, once he's a – is he re-arrested and – I mean, I see it says double jeopardy claims. I, I kind of right. wouldn't that be considered double jeopardy? No, because the Article Thirty Two was not a was not a trial proceeding. Uh, right. The Article Thirty Two was basically you're arrested, you go before a grand jury, uh, you're indicted. There's a preliminary hearing. The judge says insufficient evidence and releases you. The charges are no longer pending. You're no longer under arrest. Your liberty is no longer curtailed. And therefore, you can go forth and do what you want to do and be where you want to be, and you're free to go. Um, An Article 32 is not a judicial proceeding at which you face uh, a criminal conviction and uh, sentencing. They did right. argue double jeopardy. They did try to argue that the Article 32 was just the same as a trial. Um, and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal did uh, believe that they were correct. And they remanded the case to Judge Dupree in the Eastern District of North Carolina with instructions to dismiss the indictment. Um, The federal government appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court uh, reversed and reinstated the charges and uh, kind of, you know, got the case going again. And and they're, they're the first time... The reasoning of the Supreme Court is speedy trial. That was another ground was that the time between the murders and the indictment were a violation of speedy trial. But again, you can't violate speedy trial if you're not being held in custody during that time. And if you're not facing criminal charges during those intervening years. And the Supreme Court felt that, especially on speedy trial... You can't really appeal that until you've been convicted. 
that right, the right. grant of the the grant on speedy trial from the Fourth Circuit was kind of premature because it doesn't become ripe until you faced a criminal trial and been convicted. Right, right, right. So, I mean, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed, obviously, the claim. So now we go into the 79th trial. What did the prosecution base their defense off of? Or their offense, well, I guess. Well, the, the case, the prosecution case was basically the physical evidence, the blood, the fibers, what was found where and what was not found, uh, that that evidence did not support his story of intruders. Um, and, I mean, it, it basically... It's right. There's There were unsourced fingerprints found, but they also didn't belong to any of the people that were identified as potentially having been involved. So, right. for example, Helena Stokely. Helena Stokely had a criminal record because she was an informant with the Fayetteville Police Department, but none of her fingerprints matched fingerprints found at the scene. And in a in an apartment like that, they were always having parties and they had a babysitter that came in and uh, you know, her Colette's family visited, Jeff's family visited. You're gonna have unknown fingerprints. Um yeah, you're gonna have unknown fibers. A few. And you're gonna have a few unknown hairs. Um, that does not equal intruders. Yeah, most certainly not. I mean, especially if you can easily identify them. Right. So, um, so and they had. So, what was the defense? The, the defense case was basically that Helena Stokely and her band of hippies did this. Um, the defense, again, they, they criticized the investigation. They criticized the crime scene handling, processing. Uh, they could, uh, criticized all of the, the forensic work that was done with the fibers and blood and, and things. Um, and they also, there were things, unsourced things, like there was a, a hair found in Colette's hand. Uh, in her left hand, I believe. And it was a limb hair. It had been broken off. And it had, I believe, skin attached to it. And they said that hair, that identifies her killer. But, of course, in 1970, there wasn't a lot they could do with it. Um, they had ruled out it belonging to McDonald based on microscopic comparison. Um, there was candle wax found in three places in the apartment, two two locations in Kimberly's room and one location in li- the living room. And they said, well, none of that candle wax matches any of the candles found in the house. That means there were intruders. Um, and then the unsourced fingerprints, et cetera, they, they equated all that with intruders. 
Right. And the right. prosecution, of course, the prosecution was able to rebut a lot of it, like the candle wax. Yes, candle wax that didn't match any, any of the candles in the apartment at the time was found, but the candle wax was dry, old, and it had household debris in it. So it was candle wax that had been there for some time, not fresh candle wax from a woman holding a candle at the end of the couch as three men beat the crap out of Jeffrey McDonald. Right, right. And I mean, um, that's, that's and, the interesting thing. That's right. The interesting and, and thing. The, His dimension falls apart as soon as you look anywhere under Krillow's scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's been built up over the, the last 40-odd years is there are a lot of myths. For example, I was listening to other shows today, and on one show they think that there were no candles in the house and candle wax was found because the Internet is such a wonderful tool for spreading information, whether it's correct or not. And then somebody else reads it, and then they put their own little spin on it, and post it, and then so the stories get bigger and bigger and bigger, and sound more and more convincing of innocence. But when you go back to those fibers and the blood, that doesn't support what Jeffrey McDonald claimed happened. I mean, right, it, it right. just doesn't. So, I mean, we go into the trial. Who is this Helena? Uh, Helena Stokely? Helena Stokely. She was a young woman, and I think that she was very intelligent and very gifted, but she was also very troubled. Her father was an officer in the Army at Fort Bragg. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not quite sure what his uh, role was. Um, but she was from the Fayetteville area in North Carolina. Um, she was very intelligent, very gifted, but she graduated from high school early and then got into drugs. And, I mean, this is a woman that was daily using marijuana, LSD, heroin, opium, mescaline, you name it, she was doing it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I think she lived her her life during that time in a constant state of higher than shit. You know? and, right. so, and, you know, and she lived a gypsy vagabond lifestyle uh, for that time and, you know, probably lived hand to mouth. And she had been serving as an informant for the Fayetteville police. And it's kind of funny because when the uh, in the case against McDonald, when the prosecutors talk about her not being reliable, or judges talk about her not being reliable because of the drug use and probably 
uh, an underlying schizophrenic condition. Um, they say, but she was good enough for a drug informant. And they used her as a drug informant. Well, you know, the Fayetteville police did use her as a drug informant. And I would be willing to bet that whenever they used her as a drug informant, she never actually had to go testify at a trial. Right. Because I think she was the one who introduced the undercover narcotics officer to the target, and then the undercover narcotics officer took it from there, and then Helena didn't have to appear in court or testify against anybody. So in a way, I think even they knew that she wasn't that reliable. Uh, and being a drug informant and, and being a reliable witness in a murder case are two entirely different worlds. Um, especially when you have a person who claims to have been involved in the murders and then recants. You know, she would claim to uh, neighbors and friends that she was involved in the murders. But then when the FBI or the CID talked to her, she knew nothing about it, didn't know where she was, couldn't say where she was, but she wouldn't do that. And then she would continue, you know, making incriminating statements to friends and neighbors and the FBI talks to her, no, I wasn't involved. So that's one of the things that makes her unreliable is that she's not consistently admitting guilt. She's admitting guilt in situations, I think, where people want to hear her admit guilt. But when it comes to talking to the police or or FBI or prosecutors, she's like, look, I don't know where I was, and that kind of worries me because I don't know, but I would not do that. And I think in one interview that the the defense tried to use uh, to bolster her guilt during the trial, um, I think that the, the witness ended up saying, yeah, she told me no hippie would do that, and kill the kids and, and the wife. And then she said, how do we know that Dr. McDonald didn't do it? Very true. So she was kind of an ambivalent witness. And the defense really should have cut their losses. Um, one of the interesting things, when you, if you ever read the, the bench conferences about Helena Stokely, what had happened was McDonald's attorneys had lined up all these people that Helena had confessed to. And nobody could find Helena at that time. And what they were counting on was that the witnesses would be able to testify rather than them having Helena actually testify. And what happened was the FBI talked to her parents. Her parents said she's living in Wahala, South Carolina, And so the judge issued a a material witness warrant, and Helena was arrested in South Carolina and brought to Raleigh, North Carolina, and was available to appear and testify at the trial. And so um, the witnesses that the defense wanted to use could not testify. 
Because when Helena testified, she did flat out deny being involved. She said, look, I don't know where I was. I don't know what I was doing. I don't know who I was with. Right. And that wasn't saying, I would never do that. I, I wasn't involved. She said, I don't know what I was doing. Now, she did tell the defense, I don't think I did it. I don't recognize any of these things. But, um, so, and that was one of the complaints that McDonald made on appeal, was that she changed her testimony, and so these mm-hmm. witnesses should have been allowed to testify. But, again, you have, Helena Stokely is not a reliable witness. Right. Absolutely and not. I mean, so it doesn't matter. You could have the Pope and the President and Queen Elizabeth come in and say, Your Honor, Helena Stokely told me she killed Dr. McDonald's wife and daughters, and it wouldn't make it any more reliable. Mm-hmm. Because she's not reliable. Absolutely not. I mean, she's schizophrenic, she's a drug addict, all that stuff. But, right. Lisa, we're right up against the halftime break. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the verdict and then direct appeal post-conviction as well as the DNA evidence and the current status of the case update. That's all going to come at you here in the second hour of Clear and Convincing right here on Talk Radio 49. Looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
are we back? We are back, Lisa. All right. Yes, I'm here. Okay, I'm making sure you can hear me. Yes. Yep, we're back, and I guess we're up to the point where we're ready for the verdict in the uh, 79 trial. That's correct. Uh, The jury found him guilty, found McDonald guilty of two counts of second-degree murder and the deaths of Colette and Kimberly and one count of first-degree murder and Kristen's death. And he was sentenced to three life terms in prison, and I think he's got to serve them consecutively. So when he finishes the first life term, he starts the second, and then he starts the third. Now, he has become eligible for parole a couple of times. Uh, He didn't apply the first time, but he did apply and was denied in 2005. Yeah, so, I mean, immediately after that, do we go directly into the appeal? Correct. The direct appeal comes first, and um, to the Fourth Circuit, the Federal Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal, which is in, I believe, Richmond, Virginia. And uh, again, he raised the double jeopardy and speedy trial claims. And again, the Fourth Circuit found that speedy trial and double jeopardy were violated, and they reversed his conviction, vacated it. He was released from prison, but he did have to pay a bond because the uh, that decision could be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court by the prosecution. Right, right. So we go directly into the uh, direct appeal. You, you know, obviously the um, – Jeopardy, double jeopardy claims. Now it says the conviction was vacated. So uh, correct. What uh, what happens from there? The that Fourth Circuit decision was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the Fourth Circuit and reinstated the conviction and remanded it to the Fourth Circuit to address the remaining issues on appeal because when McDonald appealed, because the First Circuit the Fourth Circuit found that speedy trial was violated, they didn't have to look at anything else. Right, right. And so, so it one, went back to the Fourth Circuit and they affirmed the conviction and sentence. When okay. they examined so the other okay. issues. Okay. So the conviction was reinstated by the Supreme Court, and then it was affirmed by a lower court? Correct. It was affirmed by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal. Okay. All right. Because so there were other issues on direct appeal, but when the Fourth Circuit found speedy trial, they didn't need to look at all the other issues. At that point, okay. Okay. they only they found on speedy trial grounds that was the only ground they needed, and so when the Supreme Court said no speedy trial, 
again, because he wasn't in custody for that period between October 1970 uh, through January of 1975. So he really got a speedy trial once he was arrested. Once he was indicted, correct. Well, once he was indicted, theoretically, he did have that reprieve when uh, the Fourth Circuit again ruled in his favor on double jeopardy and speedy trial. And so there was a four-year delay, but that was because of something he did, not anything the government had done. So, yeah, he did, in essence, he got a speedy trial because he wasn't arrested and charged with murders in, uh, in the Eastern District of North Carolina until he was indicted in 1975. He didn't have that cloud hanging over his head for those five years. Mm-hmm. After that, we go to uh, post-conviction, which I guess is post-conviction after the uh, reinstatement of the conviction. Uh, Correct. Now, a- and after the, the direct appeal has been decided. The first thing that they, you know, really start examining is Stokely and her confessions. And, you know, we Correct. talked about it a moment ago as far as Stokely and her confessions and how wishy-washy they were. And, you know, at one point Correct. she did. You pointed the finger at McDonald. Well, what happened, and and this is another reason, uh, another thing that uh, I I didn't mention before, but what happened was in 19, I think between 1980, like 1981, 1980, 1981, uh, a guy by the name of Ted Gunderson came into the picture. And mm-hmm. he got Helena to come out to California. Okay. And while she was in California, he interviewed her under what were undoubtedly coercive conditions. Early in, from early in the morning to late at night, constant questioning, no breaks. Uh, you know, they would get done at late. They would start at 10 in the morning and get done at 2 or 3 in the morning. I mean, just incredibly coercive. And he did get her because that's what he wanted to hear. She made more and more detailed statements, and I think he fed her details Uh so that she could craft a statement that sounded like she was really in that apartment on February 7th. 1970. Okay, and, so he, uh, was, he was feeding her information. Correct. Correct. And uh, this was with the Fayetteville cop who had tried to implicate Helena from the very beginning. And uh, there was another guy by the name of Fred Boast and a, a reporter by the name of Jerry Potter who had also gotten involved. I mean, you know, McDonald came, became a, a cause celeb as this poor little guy who was just, you know, trampled under the might of the federal government. And uh, innocent man, now he's in prison for three murders he didn't commit and the whole thing. So they... They went about crafting a case for innocence, and they used Stokely to do that. 
Right. And right. one of the problems, and I think one of the things that hurt them is that the more detailed her statements became, the more they departed from what McDonald had said happened. Because in Helena's statements, we were witches in a cult, and we went to talk to Dr. McDonald because he was not treating drug patients or druggies in the army, or he wasn't giving people methadone. And I think that there was there's a lot of exaggeration of what he did. He was a, a staff medical officer. He was not a surgeon. He was not in a mass unit treating wounded soldiers on the battlefield in Vietnam. He was in an office on the base at Fort Bragg. He was making sure that the latrines and the mess halls complied with code of the day so that soldiers wouldn't get sick. I think he probably counseled soldiers on how to avoid getting BB. Um he wasn't he wasn't working as a surgeon. He did work at a civilian hospital, uh, moonlighting in an emergency room. But even that wasn't going to be a lot of treatment of soldiers because they had Womack Army Hospital to go to. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of exaggeration of what he did and what his role was. And... Um, In McDonald's statements, he claims he woke up, these four people were around him, they started, the men started beating him, the woman chanted, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, and that was it. He was knocked out, he was on the floor, he came to, his wife and daughters were dead, he didn't know what had happened, he called for help, blah, blah. He never mentions them talking to him about drugs. He never mentions them trying to get drugs from him. He never mentions them telling him he needs to give soldiers methadone. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he never mentions any of these things that Helena claims happened. Right. And right. so she, like I said, her her statements just got, they got more and more detailed, but as they got more detailed, they departed from his story mm-hmm. and that's why in 30 plus years I think we're coming up on 40 years next year no court has accepted Helena Stokely as a reliable credible witness to implicate her herself or anyone else pardon? Right. her story just doesn't add up no no, and her story also does isn't supported by any physical evidence. Um, like I said, no fingerprints. There were uh, in in one of the later post conviction claims, there were some unsourced fibers in the house, but McDonald mm-hmm. had gotten rid of all the family's belongings. Right. So there was no chance for any kind of meaningful comparison between those fibers and the whole of the McDonald household. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you can't say that those came from intruders. 
And no, the CID was not expected to go through every single garment in that house and compare it to fibers that they found. Because we pick up stray fibers from our environments. You know, I probably have fibers from my office, mm-hmm. one or two, right. on my clothing when I get home from work. And it it may be in the lint trap in my dryer or it may be on one of my, you know, pajama pants. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's not... And then one or two or five unsourced fibers, when you compare it with 87 fibers in the master bedroom alone, uh, you know, or 81 pajama fibers in the master bedroom alone, it, it doesn't it doesn't compare. Right, right, absolutely not. I mean, one or two fibers definitely doesn't add up to, you know, 80-some-odd. It's crazy, you know, to even think about that. I do have a question, though. Uh, we see, I see something on here about accusatorial misconduct. Uh, Correct. Was there, a, was there a claim by McDonald that the prosecution was uh, in the wrong about some stuff? What were they? Well, uh, one of the, the things, there were in... One of the examinations or, or lab notes uh, that the defense obtained through Freedom of Information uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was mention of some sarin fibers that were found in a hairbrush. And uh, there were also mention of, like I said, some unsourced fibers that were found, I think, in the master bedroom and, and like, some black wool fibers on Colette's body and uh, fibers on a fiber on his, on McDonald's glasses and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, those were in the lab notes, but they were never compared to anything, and so there was no report of anything about those fibers. And, of course, McDonald's defense attorneys claim prosecutorial misconduct because the prosecution did not hand over those lab notes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brady is, you know, it's kind of a, it's funny that what some attorneys will raise as Brady claims, they will raise as a Brady claim, which means the prosecution didn't provide something that it should have provided, uh, mm-hmm. is that a a co-defendant who has an accessory testifying against him, they didn't disclose that accessory's criminal record to the defense. Right. And, um, you know, the, the person, the accessory and the defendant are associates, and they've been committing crimes together all their lives, the defendant knows what crimes the accessory has committed. Right. He doesn't need to be told what crimes the accessory has committed. And yet, defense attorneys will raise that as Brady claim. Well, yeah, and we I saw mean, it in West Memphis 3 case, right. uh, where they, they claimed that the, the West Memphis police knew 
that the lake knife had been dumped in the lake six months after the murders or six months before the murders. And then at the hearing, uh, the witness that testified, first of all, he testified that he never told West Memphis police that the knife had been dumped in the lake. Uh, he never talked to him. He was afraid they'd accuse him. But he also, the person who threw the knife in the lake was Baldwin's mother, and Baldwin was present when she did it. So obviously Baldwin so, knew about it. Baldwin knew about it. If he didn't tell his attorneys about it, that's on him, not on the prosecution. Absolutely. And so that was what they said. They they said that they didn't uh, disclose. It, they also alleged they didn't disclose some witness statements. But I'm not really entirely sure what witness statements those were. Um, and then they failed to disclose the lab notes. But McDonald had his own fiber expert. And his fiber yeah. expert came out and came to North Carolina. He wanted everything sent to him in California. And the prosecution said, no way. And so he came to North Carolina, and they provided him with facilities and uh, a place where he could go through everything he wanted. And so he had access to all those unsourced fibers and the sarin fibers that were found in the brush and, and everything. So, you know, he could have determined that they were unsourced. Right, right. Okay, so we're talking about uh, you know the post conviction here. Also, I see Mitchell com- Mitchell's confessions. What do we have? What was Mitchell confessing? Greg Gregory Mitchell was kind of like Helena Stokely. He had been Helena Stokely's boyfriend. Um, Helena Stokely and Greg Mitchell both went from drug abuse to alcoholism. And Greg Mitchell uh, made statements to people that he had been involved in something horrible at Fort Bragg. He had committed a horrible crime. He had committed a murder. I don't know that his statements were ever directly, I was, I killed Colette McDonald and her children. I think that he said he was involved in something horrible, and people presumed that the McDonald murders were the only horrible thing and presume that that's what he was confessing to. Right. Um, But he had been interviewed by the CID in 1971 and passed a lie detector test Mm -hmm. and denied any involvement in the McDonald murders. So, again, alcoholism, emotional issues. He had been in country in Vietnam. And he had probably seen and done some horrible things there. And, you know, he he was a troubled person. And both he and Helena died within a short period of time uh, in about 1983. Right, definitely. So where does Jimmy Fryer and Jimmy Britt uh, fit into all this? Okay, Jimmy Fryer is a man, he was an inpatient at Womack Army Hospital. Right. He also had mental problems, drug problems, and alcohol problems. 
he had been for some time he had been at Walter Reed, which is in Washington D.C. or in the Washington D.C. area, and he had been an inpatient there. And while he was there, he was treated by a Dr. Richard McDonald. He claims that he was at Womack, and he got an orderly to let him leave Womack, and he went into Fayetteville to drink and shoot pool. He had too much to drink. He had no money. The buses had stopped, and he needed to get back to Womack. So he decides he's going to call Dr. Robert McDonald. Now, remember, Dr. Robert McDonald is in D.C., not North Carolina. He claims that he called the base operator and pretended to be a doctor and asked to speak to Dr. Ro- Dr. McDonald, and he didn't specify a first name. He was given a phone number. He called that phone number. A woman answered the phone and uh, was laughing, and then somebody said, hang up the damn phone. And the phone disconnect. Um, so you've got a man who claims to have called the McDonald residence because he thought he was in Washington, D.C. after spending the day drinking and called the McDonald residence at 2 a.m. on February 17, 1970. Not another not credible witness because again he's in North Carolina he thinks he's in D.C. he's been drinking all day he doesn't know who he's calling and I don't think he ever provided the phone number that he actually called to corroborate that he did call the McDonald house uh, once again, Jeffrey McDonald never mentions the phone ringing, and he never mentions the woman in the floppy hat and blonde hair answering the phone. Oh, and by the way, Helene Stokely was a brunette, but she used to wear a blonde wig. So um, that was uh, that was Jimmy Fryer. Again, unreliable. I guess Michael's having some technical difficulties again. Uh, They also claimed um, that uh, evidence of a bloody syringe was suppressed, and they claimed that the bloody clothes and or boots belonging to either Helena Stokely or Kathy Perry were suppressed um, and that uh, skin from under Colette's fingernail was lost. So that was all presented in the 1984 motion for new trial. And it was okay. Um, they also had filed a motion to recuse, but the judge denied that, and the motion to vet, vacate, set aside, or get a new trial was also denied. And I guess Michael is having an issue. I'll just keep talking to myself. Um, 
after the first denial was uh, affirmed by the Fourth Circuit in 1985, the defense team filed a second uh, writ of habeas corpus. You back, Michael? I'm back. I don't like, I don't like talking to myself, babe. I am so sorry. Blog Talk decided to go insane and lose all sorts of credibility with me, and I guess the server went down for a second for Blog Talk. So, uh, oh dear. Oh really? Yeah, I couldn't unmute myself, but I finally got it working. Okay, don't don't, you don't have to mute yourself. You're pretty quiet. (laughs) So. I was listening to everything you were saying there. Yeah, I mean, this guy's completely uncredible if he's drunk. And his his whole thing is, hey, I was drunk, and, you know, I thought I was in D.C. You know, that's Right. Uh, so I was trying crazy. to call the doctor that used to – that apparently when he was at Walter Reed, he would get out of Walter Reed and go drinking, and a doctor who was, I think, a psychiatrist uh, would – get him back to Walter Reed. Uh, I think he was also had been AWOL and was, that's why he was being held at Womack. Um, And interestingly enough, he came forward prior to McDonald's trial. Donald's attorneys elected not to call him as a witness. Uh So this is uh, one of those instances, again, they're raising this claim and saying that Jimmy Fryer was a suppressed witness when, in fact, the defense knew about Jimmy Pryor, uh, Jimmy Fryer and didn't want to call him. Okay. They had subpoenaed okay. him and everything. And they decided not to call him because he was not a good witness. Because he was in North Carolina and thought he was in D.C., Right. He was drunk out of his mind. That's not going to make for Correct. a good, you know, clear-headed witness. Correct. So, um, so, and, you know, the funny thing, when you when you read and you, you listen to these things, the people take what Helena Stokely said, what Jimmy Fryer said, uh, what Kathy Perry, she's another character. They take all of that as though that is true and established fact. Mm-hmm. And it's not. As I said, Fryer did not come up with a piece of paper and a phone number. That was the Jeffrey McDonald phone number and say, this is the number that I called. His statement is completely uncorroborated. Right. Right. Absolutely. So you mentioned and, Helena. Again. What about Helena Sr.? Who's Helena Sr.? Helena Sr. is is Helena Stokely's mother. Okay. And um, her her family, I think, went through a lot because of the problems that Helena had with drugs, et cetera. Um, there was a time that uh, Helena had had some kind of stroke, and the family brought her home to try and get her, you know, get her back to better health. And um, then, uh, but of course, Helena ended up going her own way. And the parents, the mother and father, were both interviewed uh, 
1979, and that's how the FBI was able to track down and bring Helena back from South Carolina for the trial. Right. Was because her mama said, the last we heard, she's living in Walhalla, South Carolina. Uh, But one of the other things her mother had said at that time was, Helena will talk, but what she says isn't going to make a bit of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Fast forward to two... Right. And um, fast forward to 2000... I guess it was 2003, 2004, 2005. Uh, McDonald's has gotten married, and he's got somebody who believes in his innocence, and she's going to do anything she can to get him out of prison. So she goes to this woman's nursing home. Um, I think her uh, Helena's younger brother, Gene, had contacted Catherine and said, I'm Helena's brother. Helena, you know, Helena told my mom things. Helena admitted to be involved, yada, yada, yada. So Catherine travels from Maryland down to North Carolina. She and Jean go to this woman's nursing home. The woman was in bad health. She had had a scare where they thought she was going to die. She was living in an assisted living or a retirement nursing home. Uh, Not a retirement home, a nursing home. Uh, Right. And they go and visit this woman, and the woman says, oh, yes, Helena came. She knew she was dying. Uh, She told me that she was involved in the murder. She was there. Um, And she didn't tell the truth when she testified at trial because the prosecutor told her not to or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. I, I don't even remember the substance of the statement because more or less, the substance of the statement is what Catherine McDonald wanted it to say. Right. And um, so they got an affidavit from this woman. Uh, but again, it's not consistent with what she had told the FBI and Joe McGinnis back in 1979 that Helena wouldn't have done this. She loved children. She would have never hurt a child or been involved in anything that would hurt her child. And, um, you know, she, she'll she say what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to make any sense. Right. So that was, that was Helena Sr. So what's this DNA evidence? You know, unsourced hairs and the hair in Colette's hand. Uh, All right. That let me go back. To let me go back death. real quick. Let me go back real quick to Jimmy Britt because we didn't oh, okay. we you you mentioned him earlier, and I got off on the prior train and then uh, blog talk screwed up and so I got derailed. Um, Jimmy Britt was a U.S. Marshal. In around 2005, he came forward and talked to Wade Smith, who was an attorney for Jeffrey McDonald, and he said. I transported Helena Stokely from South Carolina to North Carolina. While we were driving from South Carolina, she told me all about being involved in these murders. She confessed. And when I brought her from South Carolina, she was wearing a floppy hat. And um, she confessed. And then I was there when she was interviewed by the prosecution, and Jim Blackburn threatened her, and that's why she testified the way she did at the trial. 
So um, that was, you know, a great statement for them because as a prosecutor coerced or threatened a witness and tampered with a witness, that would be a serious, a serious uh, issue. Although I, I don't know so much about that because if if I'm talking to a prosecutor and I'm telling him things that leave me uh, vulnerable to being charged with a crime, I would want him to tell me that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I would not want him to sit silently and just listen and let me, you know, violate my own Fifth, fifth Amendment right to remain silent. Um, but uh, unfortunately... When Britt gave the first statement, he gave one location for where he went and got Helena Stokely. When he gave another statement, it was a different location in South Carolina. And as it turns out, the place where she was in South Carolina was not either of the Mm -hmm. two places mentioned by Britt. And by a, a, a stroke of luck, which I think was Freddie Kassab, who passed away in 1994, the records of Helena's transport, which would have been destroyed about a year before Britt appeared, were still available. And so the government was able to produce documentary evidence of where Helena Stokely was picked up, by whom, and when. And so uh, Jimmy Britt's statement did not do the did not do the job that he wanted it to do. Uh, and it's kind of funny because uh, McDonald's attorneys actually argued, okay, well he got the locations wrong, but he still was consistent about this confession, and he had no reason to make this up. Well, if he wanted attention or if he was in financial straits and he thought he might benefit financially in some way, Donald family, he did have a reason to make this up. And he thought he could get away with it because he thought the records would have been destroyed. Yeah. So um, that, that was Jimmy Britt and... You know, it's funny they had the hearing, and uh, Jimmy Britt's ex-wife testified that he told her he was going to South Carolina to pick up a witness. And frankly, I think he told her he was going to South Carolina to pick up a witness because he was going to go off with a girlfriend, and he needed a cover story. Just like McDonald's trip to Russia was really a chance to go back to either New York or New Jersey and shack up with an old girlfriend, which he did after Kimberly was born, and which I believe he did after Kristen was born. Right, right. Under the pretense of uh, having to make a trip for school or work. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so that was uh, now the DNA findings were. Also very interesting, um, one of the things was that they found the hair that I talked about that had been clutched in Colette's hand and was entwined with a fiber 
from McDonald's Pajama Top that was a limb hair that they couldn't do any other comparison on. DNA, mitochondrial DNA, it was Jeffrey McDonald. Right. Okay. Okay. So what's the uh, current status of the case? Are we still, uh, are we still in, you know, appeals or has he pretty much decided, Hey, I'm all right. No, there is an appeal pending before the, um, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal, uh, oral argument was held on January 26, 2017. Um, this is a very, a case with a very voluminous record. Uh-huh. And it's been a year and change since uh, the hearing. So uh, the Fourth Circuit they don't have a time frame. They could rule on it tomorrow. They could rule on it a year from now. Right, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, and until then, basically, he's just waiting. He's waiting on that appeal. Although, like, I don't think that the Fourth Circuit is going to uh, do him any – is going to do anything on the merits. Uh, Judge Fox, who heard the uh, – evidence in the hearings that were held in 2012, he had a 169-page order that laid out the facts uh, as developed by McDonald, the rebuttal of the uh, prosecution, and very clear, very concise reasoning as to why McDonald did not meet the burden of proof, because something that people continue to kind of misunderstand or just they don't they don't want to recognize the distinction once you've been tried and convicted and your conviction is upheld or affirmed on direct appeal you're no longer accused you're no longer entitled to a presumption of innocence you are guilty correct And so, you know, really to say that there are questions about who the real killer is in this case is inaccurate. There is no question. As far as the evidence and the courts are concerned, it is Jeffrey McDonald. Now, another interesting thing on DNA, they had reference samples from Helena Stokely, and they had reference samples from Gregory Mitchell. None of the DNA... None of the hairs belong to Gregory Mitchell or Helena Stokely. Right, right. So they do have three unsourced hairs. Uh, One was found on Kristen's bed. One was found in the outline of Colette's body in the master bedroom. And then another hair fragment turned up in fingernail scrapings from Kristen. But those are unsourced. They also are not identical to each other. So they're from three different sources. And when you look at the the people that, that McDonald described, allegedly Helena Stokely and Greg Mitchell, a black male, and 
another white male. The only other person the hairs might have come from is that that white male, and he's not going to have two different, three different types of hair on his body. They're going to have three different mitochondrial DNA. Profiles. Yeah, definitely. So, um, uh, I think that the you know the the unsourced hairs, these three unsourced hairs that aren't that are not from the same source. From the same. They're from three different sources. That's not proof of intruders. Any more than stray fibers were proof of intruders back in the nineties. <clears throat> true, true. It looks like we're pretty much caught up to date on this case, Lisa. Uh it's been great being back with you after taking a few weeks off to take care of some business. Uh yes. I certainly look forward to it. Uh what do we have on the docket for next week? Next week, uh I think we're gonna go ahead and talk about Kaylee uh Casey Anthony, which we were gonna do last week and then we had a uh I guess a hiatus. Um Right. So, but, you know, I, I think I want to talk about Casey, uh, Casey Anthony, Kaylee Anthony. Um, mm-hmm. Also, at, on a show coming up, I want to look at Murders for Hire, mm-hmm. where we'll look at different cases, not just a single case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're also going to be looking at the Dahlia DiPolito case uh, later in June. Because uh, that's that's one I follow pretty closely, and I I hope Brian Creeple is listening to that one. Awesome, <laughs> so. awesome. Well, all right, everybody. Oh, wait, I'm gonna do my closing here, sweetie. You're forgetting the you're forgetting the. <laughs> I forget that you're forgetting the the routine. <laughs> All right, everybody, thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Conahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann, and that's O-B-R-I-E-N-L-A-N-N. Join us next week for Episode 6, State of Florida versus Casey Anthony. Uh, in 2008, uh, there were weeks of intensive searches in Orlando, Florida, for a two-year-old by the name of Kaylee Anthony. Her mother claimed that Kaylee had been abducted by a babysitter, and uh, that turned out to be not true. In 2011, a jury convicted Anthony of lying to police, but failed to find her guilty in the death of her daughter. We're going to be talking about Casey Anthony's many lies to police, as well as the defense strategy that excused those lies and pointed a finger at Kaylee's grief-stricken grandfather, George Anthony. And I hope you'll join us. Thank you. Absolutely. I can't wait to talk about that next week. It should be a uh, barn burner of the show, but... Lisa, I guess now for Lisa. Now. Now's the time. I'm Michael Carnahan, and we certainly hope you guys have a great week, and we'll see you next week on Tuesday 
at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Don't forget, Thursday night we got ASWF Aftermath, and this Saturday we got ASWF Wrestling live from Tuckerman, Arkansas. We'll see you next week, everybody. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Call it a night. The party's over. And tomorrow starts the same old thing again. What a crazy.